The epistle lesson for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. In this scripture lesson, Paul teaches us to look beyond the momentary sufferings of this life to the eternal glory of the new creation. Please stand again as you are able for the reading of God's holy word. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18, we read in Jesus' name. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. We live lives of longing. From the moment we're born, we want something more. And it starts simple enough. A baby wants milk, sleep, and a clean diaper. But pretty soon, that longing becomes more ambitious. The baby wants to stand up, eat solid food, and play with cool toys. In short, the baby seems to want to be a toddler. And eventually, this longing is realized. The baby becomes and toddler, but the new toddler is still not satisfied. What does she want now? Does she want to be a big kid? Well, yeah, kind of, that would be cool, but she's already looking beyond that. She wants to be a grown-up, a fully-fledged grown-up with a house, a car, and a family. And so we spend our entire childhoods wishing that we weren't children. Part of it is that we think, when we're children, that grown-ups have freedom to do whatever they want. But eventually, we grow up and we realize it's not really what we hoped for. The freedom we longed for doesn't actually exist. It's more responsibility than anything. I heard a wise person say, don't grow up, it's a trap. You might have heard that too. We get there, and we're still not satisfied, and so we mourn for our lost childhood. But even if we could go back, we wouldn't, because then we would just have to go through all of it all over again. And so we begin to long for new and different things. Maybe we long for a spouse and a family, and we may obtain those things, and those things are very good. The nagging longing doesn't go away. So maybe we long for a nicer, a nicer car, a bigger house, or a better job. And we may or may not receive those things, but either way, we're still not satisfied. 
And so after we experience a bit of adulthood, we long for retirement. And maybe we get there, but then we might be bored or our bodies start to fail, or we worry that we might just not have enough money to live for however long it is we're going to live for. Finally, at the end of life, when we feel our bodies failing, we might just catch enough wisdom to realize the one thing we've been longing for this entire time. And it's not in this world. From the moment we're born, we long for the new creation. Most of the time, we don't realize it. But that's what we long for. Now, I hope, by God's grace, that you experience contentment in this life. Contentment comes not from finally getting everything we want, but from knowing the source of all good things. It comes from knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us and provides for us. But even with this contentment, there is still a longing for something more. And this is natural and good. Christians especially have a longing for something more. Because as Christians, we have the the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of the resurrection to come. And we develop more of a hatred for sin, and we want to be done with the things that plague us. But we're not, and we long for that. We long for something more because we know in our consciences that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so our longing actually proves that there must be a good and gracious God who created us and intends for us to live in perfection forever. Now, this might not be a proof that's going to convince everyone, at least not right away. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm going to try to explain to you is one of those things where if you think about it for a little while, you start to see how much sense it makes. And so think about this with me. Why does a a toddler grieve when his favorite toy breaks? Well, because that's not supposed to happen, and he knows that. Something in him knows that. Why do we grieve when people that we love die? We grieve because we know somewhere inside of us that that's not actually supposed to happen. Even if someone lives to be 100 years old, if you love that person, you grieve. And compared to the way the world normally works, a hundred years is longer than we're supposed to live. But we still grieve because our consciences know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Someone could live to be 200 or 300 years old and we would still grieve. I saw a TV show, so this is fictional, and a pastor was giving a funeral sermon. Uh, TV funerals, by the way, are really, really bad. (laughs) But this guy, he said, death is just a natural part of life. Our job is to accept it. Now, that's one of the most anti-Christian things you could possibly say. Death is not a natural part of life. Death and life are complete opposites, and everybody knows this. And to call death natural flies in the face of whatever is left of the image of God in our consciences. Our consciences know that death is not natural. But we try to convince ourselves that it is because we think that will make the pain go away. But the conscience knows better. Now, I can't tell you where exactly the conscience is in our mind or in our heart, but it's there somewhere in the mind of every person, and it's the part of your mind or your heart that naturally understands the difference between right and wrong. It it has a sense of justice. It naturally knows how this world is supposed to be. And this is one of the most amazing things. Without ever experiencing a perfect world, or even a better world, 
the conscience knows that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. How does it know this? If we've never experienced something else, how do our consciences know this world is not the way it's supposed to be? Think about little kids again. Kids experience theft about a dozen times a day, maybe more. I mean, they just spend their entire day stealing toys from one another. It happens so often that it should be the most normal thing in the world for them. But their conscience knows, at least when they're on the losing end of it, that it's not supposed to be this way, that theft is not right. And their parents don't need to tell them this. As soon as they have a toy stolen from them, they feel the wrongness or the injustice of it in their core. They know this. Why? They've never experienced a world where toys don't get stolen, but they know that this world is not just. And this is what also drives our obsession with politics. We know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and our hearts are captivated with longing for a better world. But why? We've never experienced this better world. What makes us think that it exists or that it could even just potentially exist? We don't accept the current state of this world, and we never will, because our hearts have a built-in longing for a better world, one that we've never experienced. We become obsessed with politics because we think that if this longing exists, then we must be able to create this better world. We can't, by the way. It's good and right, of course, to work for justice in the world, but we're never going to create the world that our hearts long for. And so our obsession with politics is really just a misplaced longing for the new creation. Our hearts long for a better world, and our consciences know that it must exist somewhere or be possible somewhere. And this is why we grieve over death. This is the big one. We grieve because death is not supposed to happen, ever. And so it's okay to grieve. It's good. We're tempted sometimes to say some really bad things when we see someone we love grieving. We tell them to accept it. We tell them that they'll get over it. These are really terrible things to say. We say these things because we want the other person to feel better. And so it comes from a place of care and concern, of course. And so if someone says this to you, don't be upset with them, of course, but hear their concern, but don't believe what they actually say. When you, when you do want to comfort someone in grief, there are many good things that you can say. You can say, I'm sorry for your loss. You can say, it's okay to grieve. And for, for a Christian who dies especially, you can say, they will rise again. Or you can say, I'm so thankful that Jesus saved them. Or many times, you don't really have to say much of anything at all, but you can sit in silence with someone, and that can be a comfort. Whoever it is that you love and grieve for, they were not supposed to die. And so you don't have to accept death. You don't have to get over it. You have permission to grieve for the rest of your life. And think about it this way. Grief is a confession of faith. It is. We grieve because we have this built-in longing for a better world, one where death does not take the people that we love. Now, I suppose there's a difference, and we should make this distinction between hopeless grief and hope-filled grief. Hopeless grief says they're gone forever, and nothing will ever be the way it's supposed to be. 
This is an incomplete confession. It only confesses that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, but it doesn't take the next step. Hope-filled grief says this world is not the way it's supposed to be, but God has promised a better world where the injustice of death does not exist. And that's why we grieve. We know this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Even animals grieve. Maybe you've seen this before. Dogs and cats and horses and cows and all kinds of animals grieve when their child or companion dies. It's not quite the same as with humans because humans are created in the image of God, but even animals know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. The whole creation knows this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so St. Paul says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And he goes on, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Where does that longing come from? It is placed there by God. It proves to us that there must be a good and gracious God who loves us and created us for a better world. The longing, it has to come from somewhere. Unless God places that longing in our hearts, we would not feel the way that we do. We would not know that there must be a better world. Our sufferings make us long for a better world. And there are many diverse sufferings in this world. Grief, loneliness, depression, despair, physical pain, persecution, hatred, shame, sin, and the list could go on and on. All of these diverse sufferings exist because of the fall into sin. That's how it started. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they fell into sin. Suffering and death began, and then their sin, suffering, and death spread to all men. If you ever wonder, and you probably have before, why would a loving God allow such pain in the world? Well, this is part of the answer. God did not introduce pain and evil into the world. It came when man followed the temptation of the devil. And so God is not the source of it. But you know, that only answers our intellectual question and only part of it. It doesn't answer our longing for something better. And we still wonder why God would allow that to happen in the first place. And so we still long for a better answer than just how it started. But a better intellectual answer is never going to satisfy because this isn't really an intellectual problem. It's an existential problem. What, what that means is that it deals with our existence, our very being. It's a problem that we experience. We don't just think about it, we experience it. The problem isn't just that we don't understand evil. The real problem is that we suffer evil. That's what really bothers us. And so God's big answer is not an explanation but a solution, something better. God's answer is to redeem this creation from suffering. That's what Jesus is all about. God did not hold himself aloof. That is, he didn't hold himself separate, far away in heaven, away from our suffering, but instead he came down into the middle of it. And this is what we read about, especially last week, in the passage just before this one. In uh, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, in the flesh of Jesus. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
And so instead of asking, why does God allow such suffering? A better question is, where is God in the midst of my suffering? And the answer is, not far, not far at all. Because Jesus came down into our suffering. He experienced it all. He suffered it all for us and with us. And he remains with us in our suffering. He suffered for our sin, and our sin died with him. So that when he was raised from the dead, that sin was gone. This is God's real answer to our suffering. And with this sin gone, we have hope in the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead and the life of the new creation. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead and gloriously transformed, we have hope that we will be raised at his return and transformed completely and perfectly after his image. That is our hope. And when the scriptures talk about Christian hope, it doesn't mean wishful thinking. Instead, it means a sure and certain hope because this is God's hope. It's not just man's hope. This is God's hope. When man hopes,